Hey there, ThoughtBot podcast listener. Everyone is navigating strange new waters as we move to fully remote teams and balance working from home with a slew of other challenging environmental dynamics. ThoughtBot has spent 16 years building great software with distributed teams for ourselves, clients, and the industry. Along the way, we've developed best-in-class practices to manage scope, parallelize work, and collaborate asynchronously. Is your team looking into how to adopt agile processes for remote work? keep communications and collaboration inclusive and effective, or even just staying close to customers and users? Join a panel of our experts as they answer your pre-submitted questions and share our favorite tools and tips for going remote in our latest workshop, Being Human in the Absence of Humans, a live Q&A for product teams. Head on over to tbot.io slash remote to learn more, submit your questions, and enroll. That address again is tbot.io slash remote. See you there. I'm tired. <laughs> should we call it? I think we should call this one. I think we did it. It's in the can. We got 20 good seconds of audio. That's all we need. That's all the people want. That's all the people want. Cool. Now we're going to find out if I leave the call, whether that's going to hang up on the call. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm going to cry. <laughs> Smart money's on yes, but here we go. Bye. Have a great show. Bye. Bye. Oh, it seems like maybe we're still going. We're still here. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. Hi, Steph. Hey, Chris. How are you? I am okay. I am living day to day. Uh, things things are generally good, uh, but life has just been particularly interesting lately. So, um, and I'm also recording uh, remotely with you. At least we've done that before, so um, we have some experience in this area. And then Tom's been uh, a long time helping us set up, which is great. But yeah, I'm I'm down in South Carolina, and life life is good, but not great. How about you? Yeah, I think to give some context, because these always come out at different times than when we record them, today is March 20th, which is just about everybody that we know is staying home at this point. So Tom was kind enough to send us out some microphones so that we can actually record these from home, which I believe this is the first time we've ever done that, or at least the first time I've done that. But yeah, the world has become very complicated. I did the show notes for the most recent episode, and it was one of those where there was like two weeks of delay between recording it and then the show notes, and it felt so out of sync with reality because the world has just changed so much. But I don't really have anything novel to add on the virus situation that's going on in the world, so I'm happy to just talk about technology and, and other things if you want to do that. Yeah, let's bury our emotions in technology. I'm for it. Sounds perfect. That has been my life approach thus far, so why not? <laughs> Why not keep it going? So yeah, what have you been up to? What have you been working on? Let's see. So most of life is still working with Ember. I did acquire a new book that I'm going through. It's called Rock and Roll with Ember. And I've been making a way through that book. And it's been really great. And I'm also doing something that I like where I'm just reading through the book. I'm not trying to follow along with the exercises and get like an environment up and running. But I'm just going through and reading all the highlights and sort of like skimming through the code. And then if I want to, I'll go back and actually like build the full application. But I find that I really like that sort of initial broad introduction before trying to like do all the small steps. So yeah, life is still mostly Ember Rails. I've had more team stuff on my mind versus like specific technology stuff. And then also lots of ideas around working remote and working with teams that have experience being remote versus a number of teams that don't have experience being remote, but are now experiencing remote work. 
That's all the Stephanie thoughts at the moment. I'd love to start with your end first, then we can sort of like circle back to any team stuff that I have in my mind. Sure. Happy to. Over the past two weeks, I've started working with a new team. And yeah, it's been interesting. It's a new code base, so it's relatively greenfields. I didn't actually get to run Suspenders new, but uh, it was run and very recently. So I can I can see all of the very early aspects and the very early decisions. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's working in a Rails code base. There's a little bit of React on the front end and some other things. But it's been nice to just work in a fresh code base because it's been a very long time since I've done that. How fresh are we talking? Was it created a couple weeks ago, a couple days ago, months ago? I think all total, it's probably like a month old. And so when I joined and started working in it, it had a handful of, you know, probably like 15 foundational commits from the original person who had kicked it off. And then the team, which is basically myself, this one other developer, and then another team that we've been working with for primarily front end design stuff. We've been sort of bouncing it around for the past two weeks, a little over two weeks, actually, it might be three weeks now that I've been working on this. But yeah, it's been fun. I've, like I said, I've really enjoyed getting to just work in such a fresh code base. The tests run fast and all of those sort of nice things. Has it been that long already that you've been there for, you said, about two, maybe three weeks? I think this is probably the end of my second week. That sounds true. Okay. So yeah, but time uh, continues marching forward, whether we want it to or not. I was going to say, well, yeah, time just sort of like has flown by me lately with everything going on, I guess. Well, that's awesome. So it's Rails and it's React. So lots of new, lots of decisions to make on this. And so there are plenty of technologies in it that I've used before, some that are newer to me. But just to go through some of the highlights and see uh, what your thoughts are if you've used these things in the same way. One aspect is working with the front end design team. So they're comfortable working in code, but we've also been trying to, in parallel, build out a lot of functionality leading up to a demo. And so there was just a lot of code that needed to move very quickly. And so one of the things that we did, especially because they were offset by a number of hours, I introduced high voltage so that we could have static pages. And I set up a parallel, essentially, view hierarchy to match the real expected view hierarchy and asked that the front end team work in that space flesh out the designs using static HTML and CSS, and then we were able to port that into the dynamic pages when we had gotten there. I don't know if you've worked like that or if you've used that particular approach or if you have a different approach that you've used, but do you have any thoughts on that sort of approach? Yeah, so I used High Voltage. It was my very first project when I joined ThoughtBot, and we were doing a similar thing, building a brand new application and working with another ThoughtBot designer uh, with Jackie in the Boston office. And we did the similar approach where we added high voltage, which gave her a perfect space to go ahead and implement a lot of the designs. And then it made my life super easy because then everything was styled. I could come in and then essentially wire it up and make the pages dynamic. So it was a really positive experience for me. Is that how it's going for you too? I think the initial back and forth was great because it gave that team a comfortable place to work without having to worry about the additional complexities. The team is less familiar with Rails, but is very comfortable in HTML and CSS. And so there was a little bit of setting them up with, here's how I think we're still using the asset pipeline in general. There's some Webpacker otherwise, which we can loop back to in a minute. But overall, there's SaaS and how do you get an image in there? And where do you like, do you just put them in the public path? Or do you put them in app assets images? And you know, what are the choices there? So there's a little bit of setup to help them get there. But then providing a space for them to work without having to worry about the other like learning active record wasn't a thing that we wanted to have them take on. And so that worked out really well for the first pass. But then we started to do some iteration. And so it became complicated of do they do the iteration in the high voltage views or do they do them as we've started to port that code into the real dynamic views? And then we started to see a little bit of drift and it was a little bit harder to read the diffs when I looked at their version of the pages versus the dynamic version of the pages. So it was a great tool at first and then the rough edges of it started to show pretty quickly. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, I can't recall if we ran into any trouble specifically in that same area. But I also haven't used it in a couple years on another project. All the other projects I've worked on have been, there's already been like a, a base app that we're adding to and developing on. So we haven't needed sort of that like get up and running, which also is sort of an interesting point because then if high voltage is really useful for this sort of like give someone a space to work on HTML, CSS and sort of like flesh out the design, as you mentioned, and then someone else can come in and make it dynamic. It seems we tend to only use this tool for when we're first getting started or for maybe certain more static pages like a, a marketing page or a contact page. Yeah, we have a frequently asked questions page in this app, which we'll continue to use high voltage moving forward. But all of these sort of bootstrap the UI pages or this like parallel UI hierarchy, ideally, that would go away in the long term. And I think that's something that I probably dragged my feet a little bit on just because it would be a bunch of work to port all that over and then communicate how do we comfortably move in this space. Because then like if they don't have data in the database, that's another hurdle to get over. And so there's just all of that sort of stuff that becomes more complicated. And so it's fine. We've been able to work through it, but it is a little bit of a rough edge. And it seems like that approach is great for building out the first version of a page, but not for continued iteration on top of it. Since I haven't worked in high voltage in a while, and I'm a little familiar with it, but I don't remember the specifics, would you mind diving into why it's so useful, sort of like how you get started with it? And then I'd also love to circle back to like, is it easy to migrate away from? But I know that's a, a bunch at once. Sure. I can try and give my quick summary on it. High Voltage is a package. It's an open source Rails gem from ThoughtBot, and it allows you to have app views pages, I believe is the directory that it normally targets, and then any view, any view file that you create in that, so an ERB file in there, will be rendered as a page. So like whatever your domain is, slash pages, slash that page. In the case of our app, we actually switched it so that they were routable from the root, which is a configuration that you can make in high voltage. So if you go to slash frequently underscore asked underscore questions, we can route directly to that high voltage page. It means that you get to skip setting up a route for it, setting up a controller, having to deal with any of the other stuff. You just make the view because essentially the place that high voltage is useful is for these static pages that don't have any dynamic database queries or anything like that. We're just throwing a bunch of HTML, like a contact us page or a frequently asked questions. Those are perfect examples of ways to use high voltage for the full production long term of your app. In this case, the thing that we're doing is just providing basically a space to work on some static HTML and CSS that eventually will actually move over and have real routes and controllers and all that stuff for. And then so once you're done using high voltage, or if you want to make it more dynamic, then it is coming through and it's adding the route, it's adding the controller, and then you no longer rely on that high voltage dependency for that page. Right, exactly. So yeah, just move it over view-wise and then have the rest of the stuff. And then, yeah, you can go from there. Although in this case, I copied everything as opposed to moving it. And I think that's the problem. Is like now we have these two different implementations, two sources of truth. It's a classic problem. I brought it on myself. In terms of the product that you're building, what does it do? What's the product that you're working on? I'm working on an application in healthcare space because that's where a lot of the code gets written these days, it seems. And it's essentially a two-sided marketplace for organizations representing patients and folks that in a certain manner are providing care. And so it's a two-sided marketplace to connect those different groups and allow the people who are searching for a certain type of care to find it, and then vice versa, those who are providing it to be able to connect with the patients that need it. So pretty classic two-sided marketplace problems of how do you model the user when there are two different user types, or even three if you count the admin. 
struggled with that one today. I made a decision. I don't even believe in the decision, but I have made it and here we are. So well, let's pause there. What's the decision you're making? So the choice that I've gone with is let's pretend that like it's Airbnb. And so we've got people who want to rent a space and then people who own. So there's owners and renters, let's say. And now one choice that you can make is to have a user model. And the user model has on it a type, which is like I'm a renter, I'm an owner. But in this case, the application is associated with a single organization, essentially. So each user will belong to either one of the demand side organizations or the supply side organizations. Even that is more of an assumption than just a true fact about the business. In all the conversations we've had so far, the idea that they only belong to one and they must belong to one or the other. That's the version of truth that we've decided, but I've seen that sort of thing change over time. It's like, ah, actually, it turns out people can be both, or they can have multiple, or anything like that. But for now, the version of it that I've built is a user belongs to an organization, and that organization association is polymorphic. So we have an organization ID and an organization type, and that's mostly fine. The main thing that makes me sad about that is Postgres can enforce foreign key consistency at that point. And I always feel sad when I have to give up on safety that my database can provide. Yeah, if it helps, I do agree with you, though, and start small and start with the idea that they can only belong to one because that way it starts simpler. And if you do have to add that sort of additional relationship, you can go there when you need to. But otherwise, I've wound up in places where like we are building features that sort of support the idea of a user belonging to multiple or it brings up questions and designs, but it's not a reality in the application. So that brings in some oddity. So I'm, I'm on board with the path that you chose. Well, thank you. I appreciate the the vote of confidence there. I'm reasonably convinced of it for right now. I just know that this is one of those decisions that is so much harder than other things to unwind. Like there are a lot of things that we can change over time, but this one already, the pull request that introduces this modeling touches 24 files. There's probably like 30 files in the app total. <laughs> like it's it's not a big app and it touched a lot of the files. And that's a lot of the controllers, models, there's some query objects and things. And it just sort of very quickly, the knowledge about this spread through the system. And I did my best to sort of hide it. But like one of the things I ran into is we're using active admin. And it's one of the sort of automagic, just give me an admin and then ta-da, you have an admin. And having a polymorphic belongs to select box was tricky. It's just one of those little rough edges that I ran into. And so I built as little custom stuff as I could in the sort of controller, the the configuration logic for active admin. But still, that knowledge is now baked into the system in a couple of places. I will say I opened the PR and then reached out to everyone that I could on the team, both products and then the CTO, essentially, and everyone else that I have talked to and been like, hey, can you look at this and let me know if I, I tried to enumerate all my assumptions and then say, please shoot down any of these that are untrue. And so I'm going to let that percolate through till Monday, see if I can get any feedback, because now is the time to change it if we want to. The minute the PR is merged and we start building on top of it, it's all the more cemented in place. Was Active Admin, that was something that was already in the code base, or is that something that you reached for? That was something that was already in the code base, although I'd love to dig in more and see your thoughts on admins within Rails. Oh, you know, I'm trying to think if I have thoughts on that particular area. I know we have Administrate, uh, which is similar, and it's an open source project that we have to help sort of like spin up admin and uh, provide a lot of those common features that you're looking for in an admin interface. And then I'm trying to remember the other ones that I've worked with. And I feel like the ones that I've worked with have always been sort of like homegrown. The Mm. team that I've worked with has their own source of admin features, and that has worked really well. So I, I don't have a default that I would go to. 
I think I've worked with Rails admin before. Upcase was using Rails admin, and so I was pretty comfortable with that. It was fine. Active admin, I've run into a few times in the wild, and that's the one that we're using on this project. And then I'm using Administrate on a personal project. And I would say right now, of the three, Administrate, unsurprisingly, I was, obviously I have some biases here, but Administrate is the one that I enjoy the most. And I think the reason for that is it purposefully tries to do as little magic as possible, as little, like, Active Admin is a very DSL-heavy configuration language, essentially. Whereas Administrate is, we're going to do some things for you, but at any point you can sort of dump out the generated code and take it over as much as you want. And I was able to do the same sort of thing with Active Admin. That was the way that I was able to implement the polymorphic select box thing, or it was really the controllers that back the CRUD actions for all the admin screens related to the user. But still, I really enjoy the sort of purposeful stance that Administrate took of let's not have too much magic. Let's take care of the easy stuff where it's easy, but have not even just escape hatches, but just like, yeah, you fill in this part when it gets weird. All of that sounds good. (laughs) But yeah, beyond admin and high voltage, um, there's a number of other things. I'm using Webpacker for the first time. We've got TypeScript in there, some React, a bunch of other things. But I think we can revisit some of those in the coming weeks. And I would love to hear a little bit more about uh, some of the Ember and team adventures that you were hinting at at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, well, I will also delay the Ember discussions for another time, because the one thing that has been on my mind more for this week is around like team dynamics and discussion. So a little bit more back into that people area. And in particularly, when it comes to engineering teams, larger engineering teams, when they need to make a decision, and it's going to span different smaller teams, I've been thinking about how those decisions get made, how you have those conversations. So to give an example, let's say that you want to change something about your workflow, or you want to introduce maybe something like Dependabot. That's a relevant example, since that's something that I was working on recently. And for anyone that's not familiar, uh, Dependabot is a dependency that you can add. It will check for all your gems and their versions. It will also work for JavaScript and other languages as well, but essentially will keep your dependencies up to date and it will issue pull requests to help you keep those dependencies up to date. So it's just, it's a really nice tool that we've used for a lot of ThoughtBot projects, but I haven't implemented it myself on a client project. So that's been fun to dive into But circling back to the idea of like, well, this is something I'm interested in. How do we want to bring this up? And for me, there's a couple of different ways. I'm used to sort of like a PR flow where there's a change that I want to see in the world. I'm going to make that change so other people can see what it would look like. I'm going to provide some concepts and answers and questions around it. And people can respond asynchronously. And then we go from there. It's either a yay or nay. Either enters the system or doesn't. And then I've seen other teams also have uh, much bigger discussions. So with ThoughtBot, we often use GitHub as well for those types of discussions. So when we'll open up an issue and then we can have conversations about that. And then there's the larger team discussions. So if you have an engineering meeting that's every week or every two weeks, and then you have a docket of things to talk about. I am curious on your thoughts and what you've experienced when it comes to making those types of team decisions. I think I know where your tendencies lie, but I'm specifically interested when it comes to like the larger teams and communicating. How do you feel about that? Have you felt like any wins or successes in that area? You don't know me. Uh, No, you probably (laughs) know me very well. Uh, I think very similar to you. My preference would be the pull request flow, but that sort of works when it's within a single code base. And so like if it's a Rails app that we're working on and it's you know monolithic, everything's in there, then the conversation and the implementation can be coupled together because it can just be a single pull request. And as much as possible, I want to cling to that. Similar to I want to cling to just having a Rails monolith for as long as humanly possible. I don't think it scales forever and there are reasons and we'll you know start to tease apart the application into different pieces. Maybe there's a front end and a back end repo or something like that. And now we may have to coordinate changes across that. 
I always really enjoyed the guides structure at ThoughtBot. So the GitHub repo that contains the guides that are relatively minimal, but also actually, I don't know if others viewed it this way, but I view it as like, nope, that's true. That's just the thing that we do. I should have a very strong reason if I'm going to deviate from anything that's listed in the guides. And again, they're pretty minimal, although they do tell me to do double quotes in Ruby. And that was the thing I resisted for a while, but I've come around. So I think it's a combination of those two, like a PR to the repo of an application or a PR to the guides. But I do really like defaulting to PR as opposed to issue when there's a change. If there's a question, then I think an issue can be a good way to capture that because we don't actually know what the outcome will be. But if it's a known outcome, like switching to double quotes, then make a PR that either changes that line in the guides or changes it in the code base such that if we get to a yes, then there's not another sequence of actions. I just learned that you used to be a single quote fan. What? I wasn't no, aware of this. <laughs> have we not? How have we not talked about that? We must have talked about that. I swear we haven't talked about that. Oh, this feels like brand new knowledge to me. Wow. And do you like, are you judging me a little bit? <laughs> I mean, it's fun to judge. So a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Not really. It is it's one of those things that when I first became an engineer and I happened to join a team that was in the middle of like having their third debate around like single quotes and double quotes. And some of it was in jest and some of it was serious. And as a new engineer, I was like, I don't know, why, why does this matter? And then I became one of those people that had a strong opinion. And now I'm back in the camp. I'm like, I don't know. It's, it's fine. Whatever. Like <laughs> I can do either style. I think it's a really important part of my developer story that there was a thing that I felt strongly about that now I look back and I'm like, that was silly. Thus, anytime I start to have very strong feelings about style or things that are like obviously not that important, I'm able to talk myself down very quickly and just be like, hey, maybe whatever. It's fine. Which is why when I look at tools like Prettier, I'm like, yeah, just do whatever it says. Why are we having any conversation? It does it. And I don't have to think about it anymore. That's great. I can think about the hard stuff, the interesting but yeah, single quotes for a while. I was a, I was, a, I was a big fan. I had a, a really great conversation with Jeff Stoles in the Boston office. We were going through some simulations of kind of like conversations with clients. It's something that we do to reinforce our consulting skills as way to level up. And we had some interesting questions that we were going through. And one of them in particular was like, when do you know when to push uh, along those lines? And when do you decide not to push on a particular practice? And my thought process is, can I still be productive? Like depending on whatever the issue is, as long as I can still be productive, regardless of which way we go, then that's where I've really learned to like reel in my opinions. And I'll still share them if people are interested, but I'll suggest it once. If there's pushback, then I'll probably bring it back and not worry about it. But if I'm actually blocked to the point that I'm not productive, then that's when I know I have to push a bit harder. And so yeah, quotes certainly don't fall into the I can't be productive camp. <laughs> but that was the thing that stood out to me and all the wonderful things that you said earlier about how to have conversations and make team decisions. And I think there is that interesting space where if you can demonstrate the change that you want to make, so then people can examine it and ask questions, then that's great. But then there are a lot of conversations that can't be replicated in a pull request and don't really show like how they would impact the team. And those are the ones that I think lead to the bigger conversations where if you do have like an engineering meeting that you can bring people together and talk about it. And I do appreciate that sort of like in-person discussion 
The downside to that, though, is and if you do have a pretty large team, it's going to be hard to actually get everyone's opinion because you're usually going to have a couple people that feel more confident and comfortable with sharing their opinion. Other people haven't had time to think about it and react to it. Other people are just reacting to it on a whim. So it's harder to have meaningful conversations that way. So I feel like I've found or discovered that my ideal spot is where it can be brought up in engineering meetings. So it's more of a introductory like, hey, this is something that Stephanie is interested in talking about or that Chris is interested in talking about and they're going to follow up here or they're going to follow up and have a conversation here. But we're going to move it out of the larger meeting to make sure everybody has time to think about it, process it and react to it. And then we'll move forward and then try to set a deadline on that, too. So that way it's not something that just sits in perpetuity. So yeah, that's something that's just kind of been on my mind is trying to still find ways to introduce change to larger teams. I have a bunch of smaller teams. And I have found that that particular mix of communication styles has been my favorite. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I, I think I hadn't actually been thinking about what you were asking of the team meetings for this. I was thinking much more about the async pull request or some other communication mechanism. And one thing that I will say that I feel is it's critically important to have, frankly, the majority of the conversation in a tool like that, because I think, it, like you said, it gives everyone an opportunity to talk. Often I found in meetings that certain voices are much stronger in those meetings and certain voices are less strong, less heard. And sometimes they can just devolve into arguments and things. And I think giving people a little more purposeful space to collect their thoughts, write up a summary, you know, make their impassioned case for single quotes and write that up in as much detail as they want. And then you collect all of that together. I do think it can be useful to use team meetings and things both for the introduction of an idea, like raising it and saying, is this a thing we can just decide in this moment? No. Okay. There's some conversation. Let's table that open an issue or a pull request to have the conversation and then potentially loop back in the next team meeting and in that moment make the decision. So after there's been a collection of thoughts, say, okay, reading through this, it seems like there's a consensus roughly around this. Just want to make sure there's no incredibly strong detractors. Cool, decision made. And use the in-person time for that portion of it, but still very critical to have the async portion of the conversation to make sure everyone gets a chance to think through what they want to say and then say that. So one other area that I've been thinking about as well that's very similar is how to push for those change. So when it is time to sort of like push for a change, maybe it's not blocking me and being productive, but it is something that I still think would be like a very healthy or positive practice for the team to introduce and then how to go about that. So that's one way of what we were just discussing with the meetings and having like issues and PRs and stuff. And then the other way that I'm going to explore and see how it goes so I can report back is to give like a lunch and learn or some kind of like tech talks on stuff and invite anybody that's interested to that particular topic to come and I'll sort of give my like, this is how I approach this particular thing. And this is why I like this particular approach. And this is how I go about it. And then here are some of the pros and cons of it and then open up more of discussion to see how others feel about it. But I'm hoping that sort of like open conversation of this is what I'm thinking and I want to give you all the chance to react to it and see the positives and then start the conversation from there to sort of like shift to a different coding style or different approach and see how that goes. Because I feel sometimes there's a resistance to change, not so much that people don't like the idea, but they don't know how it's going to impact their immediate workflow. And change often doesn't feel good, especially if you already feel productive in your workflow. So I'm going to give that a shot. It just requires me being brave to also step up and do that. And see if that's another good way to sort of like encourage a team to shift their workflow or their approach. I like that a lot. The like point of view of advocacy as opposed to antagonistic or like battling for the thing that you want and just being like, no, no, let me show you why. Let me try and sell you on it essentially, because to a certain degree, what you're doing here is sales. So yeah, that totally makes sense. 
Yes, you said it perfectly. I've been struggling with the words to sort of like describe that approach. But that idea of advocacy versus being antagonistic is the the perfect way that I was looking to describe that. So thank you for that. You are welcome. Well, on that note, I'm super excited to hear more about technologies that you mentioned earlier, but I think it's about that time. Shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or me at S. Vicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.